This morning we're continuing with our survey of the New Testament, and today we're looking at the book of Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus. I did a lot of reading and studying. I used a lot of articles and maybe four different textbooks, so I read a lot of New Testament scholars and their commentaries. It was quite interesting to me uh, what they talked about uh, the book of Ephesians as. Uh, one guy called it the Rolls Royce of the Epistles. The Rolls Royce of the Epistles. I would, I would say that a lot of these guys that have studied the Epistles, uh, apart from maybe the book of Romans, not too many would argue with that. One guy, F.F. F. Bruce, he's a noted New Testament scholar. I like this. He called Ephesians the quintessence of Paulinism. And I had to look that word up, quintessence. It's the essence of a thing in its purest and most concentrated form, the quintessence of Paulinism. C.H. Dodd was another New Testament scholar. He called Ephesians the crown of Paulinism. According to New Testament scholar William Hendrickson, he wrote an entire book and he said, here's some other things that Ephesians has been called. The divinest composition of man, the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of the Christian faith, and full to the brim with thoughts and doctrines sublime and momentous. Suffice it to say this is a highly regarded epistle and one that we should pay attention to. And here I am about to undertake an overview of this book in less than 45 minutes. So for that, I'll need some prayer. We'll need some prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write these words. Lord, as we go through this uh, text in an overview, Father, I pray that you would impress upon us that this is not just a historical document, that these are living words that you inspired, not just for the church in Ephesus, but for us. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means to be in Christ, to walk as we are in Christ, and to stand as we are in Christ, Lord. This is my prayer, praying this in the Spirit, in your Son's name, amen. So we know Ephesians is one of the prison epistles, so named because Paul wrote this and a few other epistles while he was imprisoned in Rome with the very real possibility of his own execution. As you read through Ephesians, he only references his uh, imprisonment a few times, just kind of in passing. But you would never sense that it was written by a man in chains. Hopefully you'll be able to bring that out today. Hopefully you'll see that. We don't know the exact dates, but we can narrow it down to uh, the two-year period he spent under house arrest in Rome, probably between 60 and 62 AD. This is like two years before Emperor Nero came into power and brought with him some of the most forceful, horrible persecution of Christians known in the Roman Empire. Three of these prison letters, this one, the one he wrote to the church in Colossae and the one he wrote to Philippians, were bound to churches that Paul had actually founded. He was a church planter. During his second missionary journey, uh, three of the letters were written to churches that he had founded. This is one of them. Paul entrusted this epistle to a man named Tychicus, who'd been with him in Rome to be delivered here. And as J.D. pointed out to us not too long ago, I find this fascinating. Uh, He also carried Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, as well as to his friend uh, Philemon. He'd had an epistle written to Philemon. And you can see here, this wouldn't have been too hard to do. Because Colossae was only about 100 kilometers, and that doesn't show up very well on the map here. Colossae was to the north and east of Ephesus, so it wouldn't have been hard. But think about this. Like J.D. said, at one point in history, Philemon, 
Colossians and Ephesians, all three books of the New Testament Bible were on the person of one man, Tychicus, as he traveled from Rome here. It's pretty amazing to think of. Let's talk a little bit about where this letter was bound for, kind of some background information. The city of Ephesus was the capital city in the Roman province of what at the time was called Asia, as you can see here on the map. And you can see it sits on a, kind of a main trade route. you got Rome and Athens to the west there. Cities like Jerusalem and Alexandria, what they would consider the east. So they had a lot of travelers, a lot of pilgrims from all over the Roman world coming through this. This was a major seaport. So um, people visited Ephesus in large numbers. And this was a very wealthy city from architectural uh, discovery. We can tell it was very opulent. They found homes that were split-level design, 10,000 square feet, uh, they had an underground sewer system. They had a renowned medical school, a, a massive public library. And this is an outdoor amphitheater that people can still visit, seated over 25,000 people. That's much bigger than Allen Fieldhouse or any most D1 basketball venues that's still there today. This was not some small backwater town like I'd always imagined this little town of Ephesus. I always thought of it like dirt roads and a couple of camels tied to the corners, but this was a massive uh, city. In fact, Rome and Alexandria were the only two cities in the Roman uh, Empire that were bigger. This was a city of a quarter of a million people. It included a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Roman citizens because of its uh, um, uh, closeness to Athens, a lot of Greeks, a lot of people from all over the Roman Empire. So this is a very multicultural city. Interestingly, the Romans had taken over this area from the Greeks. And the Greek religions and the Greek gods had been absorbed into the Roman system of religion. So they worshipped the Greek gods and the Roman gods right side by side. It was very interesting. By the way, this is why sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the Greco-Roman Empire. It wasn't just the Roman Empire. They'd been what they called Hellenized, um, Greekized. We see a lot of that in our culture today. Um, they embraced the Greek religion right alongside their own, and there were a lot of shrines and statues to both Greek and Roman gods throughout the city. Here's an illustration of the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a female pagan deity. In Greek, she was called Diana. Sometimes you'll hear this called the temple of Diana. She was worshipped as the fertility goddess. This was a big deal in Ephesus. In fact, this temple was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So there was quite a diversity of religious beliefs. There's quite a diversity of moral beliefs. And because, um, because of all this, the cultural consensus was very much like ours today. They didn't really see that there was any one absolute moral truth that was true for all people in all times. Very much the opposite of that. And as you can imagine, since there was no absolute moral truth, there was quite a bit of moral depravity. Everyone did, like the scriptures say, what was right in their own eyes in Ephesus. All this was maintained in the name of tolerance, how often do we hear that term, and syncretism. And it was the state religion, this is interesting, the state religion was to worship Caesar, whoever Caesar was, and whatever gods were in place, and this is why a lot of Christians were called atheists, because they refused to worship Caesar as God or the gods, they were thought to be atheists. So to claim that your God was the only God, the one true God, or that your faith was the exclusive faith, the one true faith, wasn't just politically incorrect. The government had said this is institutionalized, this polytheism, this pantheism, this pluralism. It was almost treasonous 
So to claim these things as a Christian in Ephesus at this time, you would face intense social pressure, a lot of rejection, and outright persecution, not just from friends and families and neighbors, but also from the state. So you could say that the cultural environment in Ephesus was very problematic in which to be a Christian. They didn't enjoy just the ability to be outright Christians like we do today. Their faith was not politically correct. And by the way, this town was a lot like uh, Las Vegas, very morally corrupt. There were a lot of temptations everywhere. So this was Ephesus, and I don't know about you, but it sounds like a little bit more like what America is steadily on its way to becoming, maybe quite a bit worse than we even have it right now. But hopefully this gives us a better sense of who Paul was writing to and how important his message is to believers, not just then but now. So again, I would encourage us, I'm going to read through quite a bit of scripture today, to realize this is not just a historical document. This is the living word of God that Paul wrote to a church um, in many ways very similar to us, in a culture very similar. So uh, I hope that uh, is clear. Let's talk about why Paul wrote, importantly. Why did Paul write to the church in Ephesus specifically? And all the commentators that I read, it's, it's hard to see one clear purpose. He doesn't have a, a particular crisis that he's writing to, um, clearly he's giving instruction, but the instruction is not like all the other epistles where it's kind of didactic teaching. He's kind of just declaring things. You'll hopefully see that today. Most of Paul's letters were what we call occasional, meaning they were written for a specific purpose on a specific occasion, but it doesn't seem like there's any particular occasion here that he's addressing. Like next week when uh, I believe Stephen is teaching uh, on Colossians. Um, there was some false teaching that needed to be addressed. We don't see that here in Ephesus. This is a very, um, just a general epistle. So Paul had three goals in mind, really. We can summarize it like this. One of the things that he wanted to emphasize to the church in Ephesus, and hopefully you'll see this today, is the relationship as the body of Christ to the head, which is Jesus Christ. The importance of the body of Christ and the unity that we should share. Now, this is something also you'll hear next week when Stephen talks about Colossians. Um, talks a lot about this relationship. But here in, Eph in Ephesians, he's talking a lot more about the body, what it means to walk in Christ as the body, whereas in Colossians, it's a lot more about Christ as the head. In fact, um, it was interesting. I didn't realize this. Some of you probably know this. These are called the twin epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, that we'll have these two weeks um, 155 verses in Ephesians, 78%, I'm sorry, 78 of them are almost directly repeated to the church in Colossae. So Paul was thinking a lot of the same things, maybe they were just phrased differently. So that's why they're called the twin epistles. But again, here he's emphasizing not just the, the organization of the local church, but the body of Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ as the body and its relationship to Christ? A second thing that he wanted to emphasize here, it seems, is what does it mean to walk in Christ? And Paul's always big on application, as you see in his epistles. He always asks the question, so what? And he'll, he'll um, declare some foundational Christian doctrines. We'll touch on some of them. But he always wants the Christian to walk in Christ. Walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And then finally, his third point we'll touch on is, what does it mean to stand in Christ? In light of this culture and everything that's against the believer, what does it mean not just to walk, but to, to stand as a Christian? These are three things that were on Paul's mind as he's writing to them. Now, I'm going to talk about some of the distinctives of Ephesians. 
It's one of only 66 books, but like the other 65, it makes a unique contribution. Some things that kind of set it apart. So we always want to talk about um, the fact that each book of the Bible has its own unique setting, its own audience, and its own unique message. So let's look at some of these things that distinguish Ephesians. And this was hard to boil it down. A lot of people have different ideas. So I, I boiled it down to just four main ones that I saw here. Unlike Paul's letter, he wrote two to Timothy. He wrote two to Titus. He wrote one to Philemon. These were personal epistles. Even in Romans, um, as he's addressing the church in Rome, he gives a lot of personal names. And in chapter 15, he talks about his own personal desires for further missionary work. Here, we see Ephesians is a general epistle, a general epistle. He spells out um, and declares the gospel and what it means. By the way, um, while we're talking about it being a general epistle, there are, there's some argument that he didn't really write this just for the church in Ephesus. A couple of early forms of this letter don't even have the words to the church in Ephesus. So it's thought that maybe, possibly, probably, Paul wanted this letter not just to be read to the Ephesians, but all the churches in Asia, and possibly to Redemption Hill even. Uh, number two, Ephesians is more of an exhortation than a didactic teaching epistle. See, Paul writes to people who've been very well taught. If you remember, Paul planted this church in Ephesus. He spent three years teaching them. He'd had a chance to unpack some of these theological terms that he'll declare here. Paul, Apollos had ministered there. Um, Paul also sent Timothy there to minister at Ephesus as his representative. And while he was there in Ephesus, he'd written his letters to Timothy, which contained instructions that applied to the church in Ephesus. They were very well trained. Michael and I were talking. It reminds me a lot of this church. Don't need a lot of unpacking of some of these theological terms. They had been very well trained. We contrast this, by the way, to Romans. Um, he felt the need to really carefully define his terms and develop his arguments and argue like a lawyer. But he doesn't do that here. He just declares these truths and assumes that his audience understand what he means when he says things like, chose, God chose us, predestined, redemption, sealed. He's assuming the believers understand those things. Number three, distinctive. More than in any of his other epistles, Paul is praising God for who he is and the salvific works that he's done. He has a brief greeting in verses 1 and 2, but then his first words in Ephesians begin, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the tone of Ephesians, as you read through it, it's only six chapters, but the first three chapters, of course, he's addressing humans in Ephesus, but he's also, he seems to be breaking out in praise for God. It's amazing. You'll get to see some of that. It's almost like as a reader, you get to see the privilege of Paul's praise and worship for God. And we kind of have the opportunity to join with him, and I'll try to bring that out here. And even in the, in the middle of chapter 1, the middle of chapter 3, Paul bursts out in prayer. It's really, really cool. So that's kind of a distinctive thing uh, that he does here. Finally, I almost didn't include this one, uh, but I couldn't leave it out. Paul's emphasis on the personality of the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions the, the Spirit of God 15 times. I thought, I'll do an analysis here. Galatians also does 15 times with the Spirit. Um, Let's see, 1 Corinthians, man, he talks about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit 28 times. So he talks about it a lot more, but here it's nuanced in a way that you don't see in the other epistles. 
he emphasizes the personality of the Holy Spirit as if he is a living person in the Trinity. He acknowledges the Spirit as holy. There's only one other place, I think, in the New Testament that does that. As one Spirit, he says that he's moving. The Spirit of wisdom can reveal truth. And that through one Holy Spirit, believers are being built together as the body. And he also mentions that the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved. I thought that was interesting. Now, let's look at an, a basic outline of the content. This is Ephesians at a glance. And as we, we read through this, and as we survey this, we're going to read through some classic passages that probably every one of us should be familiar with from the book of Ephesians. And I, I told a couple of guys, I was tempted when I... When I read that Paul wanted this to be read out loud to the church, man, I was tempted. I told Carolyn, I, I read through it and I timed it. It was 24 minutes and I almost did that, but that doesn't give much time for commentary. So I'll, I'll spare you reading every 155 uh, verses of Ephesians. But I do want to cover massive portions of it. So we're going to look, we're going to open it up because this is such profound truths. So um, number one, who we are in Christ. We'll hit some some passages there. Number two, how we should walk in Christ. And number three, like I said, Paul's goal, how should we stand in Christ? So we'll start with number one here. And you might turn in your Bibles if you'd like uh, and read with me, but I've got a lot of these up here. Start with who we are in Christ. This is the first three chapters are um, the great doctrines of the faith that Paul is declaring. Listen as he declares here and, and listen for his praise of God. And this is why Ephesians holds a special place among Paul's letters. Because like I said, he begins by thanking God. But here, listen as he openly praises God. And you could say, um, I know a lot of people probably out here going, wait, he does that in the opening of 2 Corinthians. And he does, but he only spends three verses doing that. Here, it's a lot of verses. So we'll start in with this. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Sorry, my, my slide was ahead of what I just read there. Moving on to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. You almost get the impression here 
that Paul is getting carried away in praise. And one thought of praise for God leads to another and to another all throughout this passage. And you can almost hear him singing in adoration. And in fact, I tried to highlight a little bit on the slides here. That little phrase we saw three times here, and I was thinking of Carrie Wilson as I was going through this, to the praise of his glory. Man, I've had that song um, just reverberating in my head. How cool is that? Paul is praising uh, his glory here. And again, um, like we said, typically Paul opens a letter with thanksgiving, but here he's celebrating and rejoicing not in the good things he's heard um, in the lives of the believers, but really what God has accomplished in his salvific acts. So that's really, really cool here. Let's move on to another important passage here that we can't leave out of our our survey of Ephesians. Paul is going to deal with the lost condition of the unsaved man and salvation by grace alone. This is always what Paul does. Gives the bad news to remind us of where we've come from here, where the Ephesians had come from. So many of them were Gentiles who had been saved out of paganism. The lost condition of the unsaved man, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. This is... (laughs) This morning I told Will I was teaching on Ephesians. Will went right to chapter 2. He said, man, this is, this is foundational. So, Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's describing all of us. We were all once there. I certainly was. But then he turns to salvation by grace alone. This passage that every Christian should be, we should be very familiar with this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul is emphasizing again that we were all once dead in sin, obeying the sin nature of man. And deserving of the wrath of God. It sounds like a lot what he, what he did in, in Romans. There's the bad news. Now here's the good news. God manifested his mercy, his love, and his grace when he saved us. It's interesting here. I'd never noticed this before, but reading one commentator, I wanted to bring this out. We see that the spiritual position of the believer is identified with the physical position of Christ. You look at verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So the believer is in Christ. Christ is in heaven. So the believer positionally is already in heaven. That blew me away. 
The purpose of God's plan for redemption is to manifest his grace and his sovereignty for all eternity. So our initial acceptance by faith and its result are standing with God, have their source only in God. Amazing. And now we are to walk as if that's true. Let's go to another great doctrine of the faith that Paul wants to declare here. Um, Move to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll deal with the first 12 verses. The church as a mystery. My ESV Bible entitles this section, The Mystery of the Gospel Revealed. Let's read this together. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is so profoundly important in the history of mankind and God's plan for redemption. For for the the Gentiles to hear this, God's promised people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, had had all the promises, and God had been speaking to them. Now, amazingly, here is this mystery being revealed that Gentiles, through faith, can be saved. Moving on in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And those are not man authorities. Remember, he says in the heavenly places, he's talking about the demonic realm here. He goes on in verse 11, this, is, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. If you look back in verse 3 there, we see that Paul called the church the stewardship of God's grace. And in verse 4, he refers to this mystery of Christ that was not revealed to past generations. And the church mystery, of course, here is found in verse 6. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Not Jews, not Gentiles. Well, we could say today, not Democrats, not Republicans, not white, not black, not male, not female, not rich, not poor. Believers in the body of Christ, united as one. All right, let's move on to a couple other important passages. We have to move to the last three chapters, which Paul deals with how we should walk in Christ. We call this practical application. Paul's calling us now to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. First of all, um, if you look in chapter 4, look at verse 3. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit He knew that the greatest threat to unity in Ephesus was actually the conflict between the Jewish 
believer and the Ephesian believer. See, the Jewish believers, and in fact, if you look in, in Ephesians a couple of times, he refers to this, this disparity between the Jews and the Gentiles as hostility. It was hostile. They did not love each other. So this is what he's speaking to here. He says the Jews were prone to excluding the Gentiles as foreigners, by the way. The Gentiles were prone to hard-heartedness towards the Jewish law. The, Jew, the, the Gentile was hard-hearted towards the, the lifestyle, the purity lifestyle, that they, they had come out of a pretty paganistic lifestyle. But given these differences, uh, one commentator I read said it could have been really easier, it would have been tempting and easy for Paul to maintain the Jews and Gentiles as two distinct factions and just let it sit there. But here in chapter 4, if you look in verses 4 through 6, he lists seven unities that all believers share. And believe me, I've been through this. This is hard to apply sometimes. We all have hostilities between believers, and it's, it's hard to sit under the teaching of Scripture, but this is so important. He says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Sometimes that's hard to uh, swallow, but that is true. Okay, now... Come to a section here. We're going to move to chapter, well, we're staying in chapter 4. Um, we're going to look at verses 17 through 32. I'm behind on my slides. I apologize. I hope you're all looking in your Bibles and not looking at mine. This is entitled The New Life. Okay? This is where Paul be- deals with the basic moral values that should characterize the life of every believer the new life. Okay. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Now, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way You learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Continuing on in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him rather labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. I don't know about you. It was probably hard for them. It's hard for me. But this is what Paul is exhorting us as believers to do. Notice in verse 17, if you go back there, Paul's charging them not to walk as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So the walk of the believer should be opposite of that of the unbeliever. 
Paul marks them as someone with a darkened understanding, lifelessness, ignorance, blindness, uncleanliness, and deceit. Then in chapter 5, I don't have this on my slide here, more application. Paul, in verse 2 of chapter 5, charges them to walk in love. In verse 8, to walk as children of light and to walk as ones whom Christ loved and for whom he gave himself as those who are aware of the will of God. And he exhorts them not to get involved in the sinful and heretical practices of the lost, where they came from. He's reminding them that while they live in a sinful culture, they're to walk. How many times have we heard this? Like we're set apart, distinct from the world. They're to walk like someone who has Christ in them, not in the ways of the world they came out of. The final emphasis that Paul wanted to impress upon his readers in this epistle, like I said, was how should we stand in Christ? The final section of Scripture we're going to look at today is the spiritual armor of the Christian. Go to Ephesians 6. As usual, we're leaving out so many profound passages. But we're going to leave here. Paul's challenging the Ephesians to stand firm against the devil. All the pressures, all the temptations of the world. Keep in mind the culture in Ephesus that we talked about. All of its moral depravity. The polytheism, the, the, um, uh, the inclusivism, the pluralism, the pressure for religious tolerance, and the ironic intolerance that comes with that for the Christian faith, anyone that would claim Jesus is the only way to the Father, and the potential persecution. This is what he's writing into. So let's read this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about the demonic realm. It's very real. Was then, is now. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Moving on in verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication to the saints. So he's cautioning the believers that their efforts to live out their spiritual position, to stand in Christ, would be done in the midst of spiritual warfare. And it's, it's interesting to me, he points out that the enemy isn't in human form, it's, it's in demonic form. He's reminding them here why they should be um, confident. In Christian warfare, he says Christians need to make use of the armor of God just like a Roman soldier would have used either the offensive or defensive physical weapons of war. Being equipped like this, we can stand strong, stand firm, and live out with confidence the victory that we already have in Christ, no matter if we're in Lawrence, Kansas, or in Ephesus, now, it's interesting. Michael pointed out to me this morning, nothing like a last-minute addition to a lesson. But this is good. Like we said, Paul was writing to a church like Redemption Hill, very well-trained, 
our pastor has made sure that we understand the doctrines of the faith. And I would say a lot of the things that we declare up here are very well understood. But if, if we look in Revelation chapter 2, this is 30 years after this letter had been received in Ephesus. The apostle John is writing to the church in Ephesus saying, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you haven't grown weary, but this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 7 of chapter 2, chapter two he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So maybe this is a good admonition for us that not only are we to stand in Christ, to walk in Christ, but to persevere in Christ. It's not an easy thing to do. And I'll close with how Paul closes verses 23 and 24 of chapter 6. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible.